Welcome back to my Relaxing Literature Podcast, and thank you so much to my Patreon supporters for the month of May, David and Lynn. Tonight, we're continuing our reading of Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. We're currently on Chapter 32, Tender Troubles. Joe. I'm anxious about Beth. My mother, she has seemed unusually well since the babies came. It's not her health that troubles me now, it's her spirits. I'm sure there is something on her mind, and I want you to discover what it is. What makes you think so, mother? She sits alone a good deal, and doesn't talk to her father as much as she used. I found her crying over the babies the other day. When she sings, the songs are always sad ones, and now and then I see a look in her face that I don't understand. This isn't like Beth, and it worries me. Have you asked her about it? I've tried once or twice, but she either evaded my questions or looked so distressed that I stopped. I never force my children's confidence, and I seldom have to wait for long. After sewing thoughtfully for a minute, Joe said, I think she is growing up, and so begins to dream dreams, and have hopes and fears and fidgets, without knowing why or being able to explain them. Why, mother, Beth's eighteen, but we don't realize it, and treat her like a child, forgetting she's a woman. So she is. Dear heart, how fast you do grow up. Can't be helped, Marmy, so you must resign yourself to all sorts of worries, and let your birds hop out of the nest, one by one. I promise never to hop very far, if that is any comfort to you. It's a great comfort, Joe. I always feel strong when you are at home, now Meg is gone. Beth is too feeble, and Amy too young to depend upon, but when the tug comes, you are always ready. Why, you know I don't mind hard jobs much, and there must always be one scrub in a family. Amy is splendid in fine works, and I'm not, but I feel in my element when all the carpets are to be taken up, or half the family fall sick at once. Amy is distinguishing herself abroad, but if anything is amiss at home, I'm your man. I leave Beth to your hands then, for she will open her tender little heart to her Joe sooner than anyone else. Be very kind, and don't let her think anyone watches or talks about her. If she would only get quite strong and cheerful again, I wouldn't have a wish in the world. Happy woman, I've got heaps. My dear, what are they? I'll settle Bethy's troubles, and then I'll tell you mine. They're not very wearing, so they'll keep. And Joe stitched away with a wise nod which set her mother's heart at rest, about her for the present at least. While apparently absorbed in her own affairs, Joe watched Beth, and after many conflicting conjectures, finally settled upon one which seemed to explain the change in her. A slight incident gave Joe the clue to the mystery, she thought, and lively fancy, loving heart, did the rest. She was affecting to write busily one Saturday afternoon when she and Beth were alone together, yet as she scribbled she kept her eye on her sister, who seemed unusually quiet. Sitting at the window, Beth's work often dropped into her lap, and she leaned her head upon her hand in a dejected attitude while her eyes rested on the dull autumnal landscape. Suddenly, someone passed below whistling like an operatic blackbird, and a voice called out, 
all serene coming in tonight. Beth started, leaned forward, smiled, and nodded, watched the passerby till his quick tramp died away, then said softly, as if to herself, How strong and well and happy that dear boy looks. Hmm, said Joe, still intent upon her sister's face, for the bright color faded as quickly as it came, the smile vanished, and presently a tear lay shining on the window ledge. Beth whisked it off, and in her half-averted face read a tender sorrow that made her own eyes fill. Fearing to betray herself, she slipped away, murmuring something about needing more paper. "'Mercy on me. Beth loves Laurie,' she said, sitting down in her own room, pale with the shock of the discovery which she believed she had just made. "'I never dreamed of such a thing. What will Mother say? I wonder if her—' There Joe stopped and turned scarlet with a sudden thought. "'If he shouldn't love back again, how dreadful it would be. He must. I'll make him.' and she shook her head threateningly at the picture of the mischievous-looking boy laughing at her from the wall. Oh, dear, we are growing up with a vengeance. Here's Meg married and a mamma, Amy flourishing away at Paris, and Beth in love. I'm the only one that has the sense to keep out of mischief, Joe thought intently for a minute with her eyes fixed on the picture. Then she smoothed out her wrinkled forehead and said, with a decided nod at the face opposite, No, thank you, sir. You're very charming, but you've no more stability than a weathercock, so you needn't write touching notes and smile in that insinuating way, for it won't do a bit of good, and I won't have it. Then she sighed and fell into a reverie from which she did not wake till the early twilight sent her down to take new observations, which only confirmed her suspicion. Though Laurie flirted with Amy and joked with Joe, his manner to Beth, had always been peculiarly kind and gentle, but so was everybody's. Therefore, no one thought of imagining that he cared more for her than for the others. Indeed, a general impression had prevailed in the family of late that our boy was getting fonder than ever of Joe, who, however, wouldn't hear a word upon the subject, and scolded violently if anyone dared to suggest it. When Laurie first went to college, he fell in love about once a month, but these small flames were as brief as ardent, did no damage, and much amused Joe, who took great interest in the alternations of hope, despair, and resignation which were confided to her in their weekly conferences. But there came a time when Laurie ceased to worship at many shrines, hinted darkly at one all-absorbing passion, and indulged occasionally in Byronic fits of gloom. Then he avoided the tender subject altogether, wrote philosophical notes to Joe, turned studious, and gave out that he was going to dig, intending to graduate in a blaze of glory. This suited the young lady better than twilight confidences, tender pressures of the hand, and eloquent glances of the eye, for with Joe... Brain developed earlier than heart, and she preferred imaginary heroes to real ones, because when tired of them, the former could be shut up in the tin kitchen till called for, and the latter were less manageable. Things were in this state when the grand discovery was made, and Joe watched Laurie that night as she had never done before. If she had not got the new idea into her head, she would have seen nothing unusual in the fact that Beth was very quiet and Laurie very kind to her. 
but having given the rein to her lively fancy, it galloped away with her at a great pace, and common sense, being rather weakened by a long course of romance writing, did not come to the rescue. As usual, Beth lay on the sofa, and Laurie sat in a low chair close by, amusing her with all sorts of gossip, for she depended on her weekly spin, and he never disappointed her. But that evening, Joe fancied that Beth's eyes rested on the lively, dark face beside her with peculiar pleasure, and that she listened with intense interest to an account of some exciting cricket match, though the phrases, caught off a tice, stumped off his ground, and the leg hit for three, were as intelligible to her as Sanskrit. She also fancied, having set her heart upon seeing it, that she saw a certain increase in gentleness of Laurie's manner, that he dropped his voice now and then, laughed less than usual, was a little absent-minded, and settled the afghan over Beth's feet with an assiduity that was really almost tender. Who knows? Stranger things have happened, thought Joe as she fussed about the room. She will make quite an angel of him, and he will make life delightfully easy and pleasant for the dear, if they only love each other. I don't see how he can help it, and I do believe he would if the rest of us were out of the way. As everyone was out of the way but herself, Jo began to feel that she ought to go dispose of herself with all speed. But where should she go? And burning to lay herself upon the shrine of sisterly devotion, she sat down to settle that point. Now the old sofa was a regular patriarch of a sofa, long, broad, well-cushioned, and low, a trifle shabby as well it might be, for the girls had slept and sprawled on it as babies, fished over the back, rode on the arms, and had menageries under it as children, and rested tired heads, dreamed dreams, and listened to tender talk on it as young women. They all loved it, for it was a family refuge, and one corner had always been Joe's favorite lounging place. Among the many pillows that adorned the venerable couch was one hard, round, covered with prickly horsehair and furnished with a knobby button at each end. This repulsive pillow was her especial property, being used as a weapon of defense, a barricade, or a stern preventative of too much slumber. Laurie knew this pillow well, and had cause to regard it with deep aversion, having been unmercifully pummeled with it in former days when romping was allowed, and now frequently debarred by it from the seat he most coveted next to Joe in the sofa corner. If the sausage, as they called it, stood on end, it was a sign that he might approach and repose, but if it lay flat across the sofa, woe to man, woman, or child who dared disturb it. That evening, Joe forgot to barricade her corner and had not been in her seat five minutes before a massive form appeared beside her, and with both arms spread over the sofa back, both long legs stretched out before him, Laurie exclaimed with a sigh of satisfaction, "'Now this is filling at the price.' "'No slang,' snapped Joe, slamming down the pillow, but it was too late, there was no room for it, and, coasting onto the floor, it disappeared in a most mysterious manner. "'Come, Joe, don't be thorny. After studying himself to a skeleton all week, a fellow deserves petting, and ought to get it. Beth will pet you. I'm busy.' "'No, she's not to be bothered with me. But you like that sort of thing, unless you've suddenly lost your taste for it. Have you?' 
Do you hate your boy and want to fire pillows at him? Anything more wheedlesome than that touching appeal was seldom heard, but Joe quenched her boy by turning on him with a stern query. How many bouquets have you sent Miss Randall this week? Not one, upon my word. She's engaged. Now then. I'm glad of it. That's one of your foolish extravagances, sending flowers and things to girls for whom you don't care two pens, continued Joe reprovingly. Sensible girls, for whom I do care whole papers of pins, won't let me send them flowers and things, so what can I do? My feelings need a vent. Mother doesn't approve of flirting, even in fun, and you do flirt desperately, Teddy. I'd give anything if I could answer, so do you. As I can't, I'll merely say that I don't see any harm in that pleasant little game if all parties understand that it's only play. Well... It does look pleasant, but I can't learn how it's done. I've tried, because one feels awkward in company not to do as everybody else is doing, but I don't seem to get on, said Joe. Take lessons of Amy. She has a regular talent for it. Yes, she does it very prettily and never seems to go too far. I suppose it's natural to some people to please without trying and others to always say and do the wrong thing in the wrong place. I'm glad you can't flirt. It's really refreshing to see a sensible, straightforward girl who can be jolly and kind without making a fool of herself. Between ourselves, Joe, some of the girls I know really do go on at such a rate I'm ashamed of them. They don't mean any harm, I'm sure, but if they knew how we fellows talked about them afterward, they'd mend their ways, I fancy. They do the same, and as their tongues are the sharpest, you fellows get the worst of it, for you are as silly as they, every bit. If you behaved properly, they would, but knowing you like their nonsense, they keep it up, and then you blame them. Much you know about it, ma'am, said Laurie in a superior tone. We don't like romps and flirts, though we may act as if we did sometimes. The pretty, modest girls are never talked about, except respectfully among gentlemen. Bless your innocent soul, if you could be in my place for a month, you'd see things that would astonish you a trifle. Upon my word, when I see one of those harem-scarum girls, I always want to say with our friend Cock Robin, Out upon you, fie upon you, bold-faced jig. It was impossible to help laughing at the funny conflict between Laurie's chivalrous reluctance to speak ill of womankind, and his very natural dislike of the unfeminine folly of which fashionable society showed him many samples. Joe knew that young Lawrence was regarded as a most eligible party by worldly mamas, was much smiled upon by their daughters, and flattered enough by ladies of all ages to make a coxcomb of him. So she watched him rather jealously, fearing he would be spoiled, and rejoiced more than she confessed to find that he still believed in modest girls. Returning suddenly to her admonitory tone, she said, dropping her voice, "'If you must have a vent, Teddy, go and devote yourself to one of the pretty, modest girls whom you do respect, and not waste your time with the silly ones.' "'You really advise it?' and Laurie looked at her with an odd mixture of anxiety and merriment in his face. "'Yes, I do.' but you'd better wait till you are through college on the whole and be fitting yourself for the place meantime. You're not half good enough for... Well, 
whoever the modest girl may be, and Jo looked a little queer likewise, for a name had almost escaped her. That I'm not, acquiesced Laurie, with an expression of humility quite new to him, as he dropped his eyes and absently wound Joe's apron tassel round his finger. Mercy on us, this will never do, thought Joe, adding aloud. Go and sing to me, I'm dying for some music, and always like yours. I'd rather stay here, thank you. Well, you can't, there isn't room. Go and make yourself useful, since you are too big to be ornamental. I thought you hated to be tied to a woman's apron string, retorted Joe, quoting certain rebellious words of his own. Ah, that depends on who wears the apron. And Laurie gave an audacious tweak at the tassel. Are you going? demanded Joe, diving for the pillow. He fled at once, and the minute it was well, up with the bonnets of Bonnie Dundee, she slipped away to return no more till the young gentleman departed in high dudgeon. Joe lay awake long that night and was just dropping off when the sound of a stifled sob made her fly to Beth's bedside with the anxious inquiry, What is it, dear? I thought you were asleep, sobbed Beth. Is it the old pain, my precious? No, it's a new one, but I can bear it, and Beth tried to check her tears. Tell me about it, and let me cure it as I often did the other. You can't. There is no cure. There Beth's voice gave way, and clinging to her sister, she cried so despairingly that Joe was frightened. Where is it? Shall I call mother? No, no, don't call her, don't tell her. I shall be better soon. Lie down here and pour my head. I'll be quiet and go to sleep, indeed I will. Joe obeyed, but as her hand went softly to and fro across Beth's hot forehead and wet eyelids, her heart was very full, and she longed to speak. But young as she was, Joe had learned that hearts, like flowers, cannot be rudely handled, but must open naturally, so though she believed she knew the cause of Beth's new pain, she only said, in her tenderest tone, "'Does anything trouble you, dearie?' "'Yes, Joe,' after a long pause. "'Wouldn't it comfort you to tell me what it is? "'Not now, not yet.' Then I won't ask, but remember, Bethy, that Mother and Joe are always glad to hear and help you if they can. I know it. I'll tell you by and by. Is the pain better now? Oh, yes, much better. You are so comfortable, Joe. Go to sleep, dear. I'll stay with you. So cheek to cheek they fell asleep, and on the morrow Beth seemed quite herself again. For at eighteen neither heads nor hearts ache long, and a loving word can medicine most ills. But Jo had made up her mind, and after pondering over a project for some days, she confided it to her mother. "'You asked me the other day what my wishes were. I'll tell you one of them, Marmy,' she began, as they sat along together. "'I want to go away somewhere this winter for a change.' "'Why, Jo?' and her mother looked up quickly, as if the words suggested a double meaning. With her eyes on her work, Joe answered soberly, I want something new. I feel restless and anxious to be seeing, doing, and learning more than I am. I brood too much over my own small affairs and need stirring up, so as I can be spared this winter, I'd like to hop a little way and try my wings. Where will you hop? 
to New York. I had a bright idea yesterday, and this is it. You know Mrs. Kirky wrote to you for some respectable young person to teach her children, and so... It's rather hard to find just the thing, but I think I should suit it if I tried. My dear, go out to service in that great boarding house, and Mrs. March looked surprised, but not displeased. It's not exactly going out to service, for Mrs. Kirk is your friend, the kindest soul that ever lived, and would make things pleasant for me, I know. Her family is separate from the rest, and no one knows me there. Don't care if they do. It's honest work, and I'm not ashamed at it. Nor I, but your writing. All the better for the change. I shall see and hear new things, get new ideas, and even if I haven't much time there, I shall bring home quantities of material for my rubbish. I have no doubt of it, but are these your only reasons for this sudden fancy? No, mother. May I know the others? Joe looked up, and Joe looked down, and then said slowly, with sudden color in her cheeks, it may be vain and wrong to say it, but I'm afraid Laurie is getting too fond of me. Then you don't care for him, in the way it is evident he begins to care for you, and Mrs. March looked anxious as she put the question. Mercy, no. I love the dear boy, as I always have, and am immensely proud of him, but as for anything more, it's out of the question. I'm glad of that, Joe. Why, please? Because, dear, I don't think you're suited to one another. As friends, you are very happy, and your frequent quarrels soon blow over, but I fear you would both rebel if you were mated for life. You are too much alike and too fond of freedom, not to mention hot tempers and strong wills, to get on happily together, in a relation which needs infinite patience and forbearance as well as love. That's just the feeling I had, though I couldn't express it. I'm glad you think he is only beginning to care for me. It would trouble me sadly to make him unhappy, for I couldn't fall in love with the dear old fellow merely out of gratitude, could I? You were sure of his feelings for you? The color deepened in Joe's cheeks as she answered with the look of mingled pleasure, pride, and pain which young girls wear when speaking of their first lovers. I'm afraid it is so, mother. He hasn't said anything, but he looks a great deal. I think I had better go away before it becomes anything. I agree with you, and if it can be managed, you shall go. Joe looked relieved, and after a pause said, smiling, how Mrs. Moffat would wonder at your want of management if she knew, and how she will rejoice that Annie may still hope. Ah, Joe, mothers may differ in their management, but the hope is the same in all, the desire to see their children happy. Meg is so, and I am content with her success. You, I leave, to enjoy your liberty till you tire of it, for only then will you find that there is something sweeter. Amy is my chief care now, but her good sense will help her. For Beth, I indulge no hopes except that she may be well. By the way, she seems brighter this last day or two. Have you spoken to her? Yes, she owned she had a trouble and promised to tell me by and by. I said no more, for I think I know it, said Joe told her little story. Mrs. March shook her head and did not take so romantic a view of the case, but looked grave and repeated her opinion 
that for Laurie's sake Joe should go away for a time. Let us say nothing about it to him till the plan is settled, then I'll run away before he can collect his wits and be tragic. Beth must think I'm going to please myself, as I am, for I can't talk about Laurie to her. But she can pet and comfort him after I'm gone, and to cure him of his romantic notion. He's been through so many little trials of the sort, he's used to it, and will soon get over his lovelornity. Joe spoke hopefully, but could not rid herself of the foreboding fear that this little trial would be harder than the others, and that Laurie would not get over his lovelornity as easily as heretofore. The plan was talked over in a family council and agreed upon, for Mrs. Kirky gladly accepted Joe and promised to make a pleasant home for her. The teaching would render her independent, and such leisure as she got might be made profitable by writing, while the new scenes and society would be both useful and agreeable. Joe liked the prospect and was eager to be gone, for the home nest was growing too narrow for her restless nature and adventurous spirit. When all was settled, with fear and trembling, she told Laurie, but to her surprise he took it very quietly. He had been graver than usual of late, but very pleasant, and when jokingly accused of turning over a new leaf, he answered soberly, "'So I am, and I mean this one shall stay turned.' Joe was very much relieved that one of his virtuous fits should come on just then, and made her preparations with a lightened heart, for Beth seemed more cheerful, and hoped she was doing the best for all. "'One thing I leave in your especial care,' she said, the night before she left. "'You mean your papers?' asked Beth. "'No, my boy. Be very good to him, won't you?' "'Of course I will, but I can't fill your place, and he'll miss you sadly.' It won't hurt him, so remember, I leave him in your charge, to plague, pet, and keep in order. I'll do my best for your sake, promised Beth, wondering why Joe looked at her so queerly. When Laurie said goodbye, he whispered significantly, It won't do a bit of good, Joe. My eye is on you, so mind what you do, or I'll come and bring you home. Chapter 33 Joe's Journal New York, November. Dear Marmy and Beth, I'm going to write you a regular volume, for I've got heaps to tell, though I'm not a fine young lady traveling on the continent. When I lost sight of father's dear old face, I felt a trifle blue, and might have shed a briny drop or two if an Irish lady with four small children, all crying more or less, hadn't diverted my mind for I amused myself by dropping gingerbread nuts over the seat every time they opened their mouths to roar. Soon the sun came out, and taking it as a good omen, I cleared up likewise and enjoyed my journey with all my heart. Mrs. Kirky welcomed me so kindly I felt at home at once, even in that big house full of strangers. She gave me a funny little sky parlor, all that she had, but there's a stove in it and a nice table and a sunny window, so I can sit there and write whenever I like. A fine view and a church tower opposite atone for the many stairs, and I took a fancy to my den on the spot. The nursery, where I am to teach and sew, is a pleasant room next to Mrs. Kirky's private parlor, and the two little girls are pretty children, rather spoiled, I fancy, 
that they took to me after telling them the seven bad pigs, and I've no doubt I shall make a model governess. I am to have my meals with the children, if I prefer it to the great table, and for the present I do, for I am bashful, though no one will believe it. Now, my dear, make yourself at home, said Mrs. K. in her motherly way. I'm on the drive from morning till night, and you may suppose with such a family that a great anxiety will be off my mind if I know the children are safe with you. My rooms are always open to you, and your own shall be as comfortable as I can make it. There are some pleasant people in the house if you feel sociable, and your evenings are always free. Come to me if anything goes wrong, and be as happy as you can. There's the tea-bell. I must run and change my cap. And off she bustled, leaving me to settle myself into my new nest. As I went downstairs soon after, I saw something I liked. The flights are very long in this tall house, and as I stood waiting at the head of the third one for a little servant girl to lumber up, I saw a gentleman come along behind her, take the heavy hod of the coal out of her hand, carry it all the way up, put it down at a door nearby, and walk away, saying, with a kind nod and a foreign accent, It goes better so. The little back is too young to have such heaviness. Wasn't it good of him? I like such things, for his father says trifles show character. When I mentioned it to Mrs. K. that evening, she laughed and said, That must have been Professor Bear. He's always doing things of that sort. Mrs. K. told me he was from Berlin, very learned and good, but poor as a church mouse, and gives lessons to support himself and two little orphan nephews he is educating here, according to the wishes of his sister, who married an American. Not a very romantic story, but it interested me, and I was glad to hear that Mrs. K. lends him her parlor for some of his scholars. There is a glass door between it and the nursery, and I mean to peep at him, and then I'll tell you how he looks. He's almost forty, so it's no harm, Marmy. After tea and a go-to-bed romp with the little girls, I attacked the big work-basket and had a quiet evening chattering with my new friend. I shall keep a journal letter and send it once a week, so good night and more tomorrow. Tuesday Eve Had a lively time in my seminary this morning, for the children acted like Sancho, and at one time I really thought I should shake them all around. Some good angel inspired me to try gymnastics, and I kept it up till they were glad to sit down and keep still. After luncheon, the girl took them out for a walk, and I went to my needlework like a little maple with a willing mind. I was thanking my stars that I'd learned to make nice buttonholes when the parlor door opened and shut, and someone began to hum, Kenst du das Land, like a big bumblebee. It was dreadfully improper, I know, but I couldn't resist the temptation, and lifting one end of the curtain before the glass door, I peeped in. Professor Bear was there, and while he arranged his books, I took a good look at him, a regular German, rather stout, with brown hair tumbled all over his head, a bushy beard, good nose, the kindest eyes I ever saw, and a splendid big voice that does one's ears good, after our sharp or slipshod American gabble. His clothes were rusty, his hands were large, and he hadn't a really handsome feature in his face, except his beautiful teeth, yet I liked him, for he had a fine head, his linen was very nice, 
and he looked like a gentleman, though two buttons were off his coat, and there was a patch on one shoe. He looked sober, in spite of his humming, until he went to the window to turn the hyacinth bulbs toward the sun and stroke the cat, who received him like an old friend. Then he smiled, and when a tap came at the door, called out in a loud, brisk tone, Herein! I was just going to run when I caught sight of a morsel of a child carrying a big book and stopped to see what was going on. Me wants me bear, said the mite, slamming down her book and running to meet him. Thou shalt half thy bear. Come then and take a good hug from him, my Tina, said the professor, catching her up with a laugh and holding her so high over his head that she had to stoop her little face to kiss him. Now me must toady my lesson, went on the funny little thing. So he put her up on the table and opened the great dictionary she had brought and gave her a paper and pencil and she scribbled away, turning a new leaf now and then and passing her little fat finger down the page as if finding a word so soberly that I nearly betrayed myself by a laugh while Mr. Bear stood stroking her pretty hair with a fatherly look that made me think she must be his own, though she looked more French than German. Another knock and the appearance of two young ladies sent me back to my work, and there I virtuously remained through all the noise and gaddling that went on next door. One of the girls kept laughing affectedly and saying, Now, Professor, in a coquettish tone, and the other pronounced her German with an accent that must have made it hard for him to keep sober. Both seemed to try his patience sorely, for more than once I heard him say emphatically, No, no, it is not so. You have not attend to what I say. And once there was a loud rap, as if he struck the table with his book, followed by the despairing exclamation, Poot! It all goes bad this day. Poor man, I pitied him, and when the girls were gone, took just one more peep to see if he survived it. He seemed to have thrown himself back in his chair, tired out, and sat there with his eyes shut till the clock struck two, when he jumped out, put his books in his pocket as if ready for another lesson, and, taking little Tina, who had fallen asleep on the sofa in his arms, he carried her quietly away. I fancy he has had a hard life of it. Mrs. Kirk asked me if I wouldn't go down to the five o'clock dinner, and feeling a little bit homesick, I thought I would, just to see what sort of people are under the same roof with me. So I made myself respectable and tried to slip in behind Mrs. Kirk, but as she is short and I'm tall, my efforts at concealment were rather a failure. She gave me a seat by her, and after my face cooled off, I plucked up courage and looked about me. The long table was full, and every one intent on getting their dinner, the gentlemen especially, who seemed to be eating on time, for they bolted in every sense of the word, vanishing as soon as they were done. There was the usual assortment of young men absorbed in themselves, young couples absorbed in each other, married ladies and their babies, and old gentlemen in politics. I don't think I shall care to have much to do with any of them except one sweet-faced maiden lady who looks as if she had something in her. Cast away at the very bottom of the table was the professor, shouting answers to the questions of a very inquisitive deaf old gentleman on one side, and talking philosophy with a Frenchman on the other. 
If Amy had been here, she'd have turned her back on him forever because, sad to relate, he had a great appetite and shuffled in his dinner in a manner which would have horrified her ladyship. I didn't mind, for I liked to see folks eat with a relish, as Hannah says, and the poor man must have needed a deal of food after teaching idiots all day. As I went upstairs after dinner, two of the young men were settling their hats before the hall mirror, and I heard one say to the other, "'Who's the new party?' "'Governess or something of that sort.' "'What the deuce is she at our table for?' "'Friend of the old ladies. "'Handsome head, but no style. "'Not a bit of it. "'Give us a light and come on.' "'I felt angry at first, and then I didn't care, "'for a governess is as good as a clerk, "'and I've got sense if I haven't got style.' which is more than some people have, judging from the remarks of the elegant beings who clattered away, smoking like bad chimneys. I hate ordinary people. Thursday Yesterday was a quiet day spent in teaching, sewing, and writing in my little dorm, which is very cozy, with a light and fire. I picked up a few bits of news and was introduced to the professor. It seems that Tina is the child of the Frenchwoman who does the fine ironing in the laundry here. The little thing has lost her heart to Mr. Bear and follows him about the house like a dog whenever he is at home, which delights him, as he is very fond of children, though a bachelor. Kitty and Minnie Kirk likewise regard him with affection and tells all sorts of stories about the plays he invents, the presents he brings, and the splendid tales he tells. The younger men quiz him, it seems, call him Old Fritz, Valkerbeer, Ursa Major, and make all manner of jokes about his name. But he enjoys it like a boy, Mrs. Kirk says, and takes it so good-naturedly that they all like him in spite of his foreign ways. The maiden lady is a Miss Norton, rich, cultivated, and kind. She spoke to me at dinner today, for I went to table again, it's such a fun to watch people and asked me to come and see her at her room. She has fine books and pictures, knows interesting persons, and seems friendly, so I shall make myself agreeable, for I do want to get in good society, only it isn't the same sort that Amy likes. I was in our parlor last evening when Mr. Bear came in with some newspapers for Mrs. Kirky. She wasn't there, but Minnie, who is a little old woman, introduced me very prettily. This is Mama's friend, Miss March. Yes, and she's jolly, and we like her lots, added Kitty, who is an infant terrible. We both bowed, and then we laughed, for the prim introduction and the blunt addition were rather a comical contrast. Ah, yes, I hear those naughty ones go to vex you, Miss March. If so again, call me, and I will come, he says, with a threatening frown that delighted the little wretches. I promised I would, and he departed, but it seems as if I was doomed to see a good deal of him, for today as I passed his door on my way out, by accident I knocked against it with my umbrella. It flew open, and there he stood in his dressing gown, with a big blue sock on one hand and a darning needle in the other. He didn't seem at all ashamed of it, for when I explained and hurried on he waved his hand, sock and all, saying in his loud, cheerful way, you have a fine day to make your walk. Bon voyage, mademoiselle. I laughed all the way downstairs, but it was a little pathetic, also to think of the poor man having to mend his own clothes. 
The German gentleman embroider, I know, but darning hose is another thing, and not so pretty. Saturday Nothing has happened to write about except a call on Miss Norton, who has a room full of pretty things, and who was very charming, for she showed me all her treasures and asked me if I would sometimes go with her to lectures and concerts as her escort if I enjoyed them. She put it as a favor, but I'm sure Mrs. Kirk has told her about us, and she does it out of kindness to me. I'm as proud as Lucifer, but such favors from such people don't burden me, and I accept it gratefully. When I got back to the nursery, there was such an uproar in the parlor that I looked in, and there was Mr. Bear down on his hands and knees with Tina on his back, Kitty leading him with a jump rope, and Minnie feeding two small boys with seed cakes as they roared and ramped in cages built of chairs. "'We are playing nargerie,' explained Kitty. "'This is mine effalant,' added Tina, holding on by the professor's hair. "'Mama always allows us to do what we like on Saturday afternoon when Franz and Emile come, doesn't she, Mr. Bear?' said Minnie. The effalant sat up, looking as much in earnest as any of them, and said soberly to me, "'I give you my word it is so. If we make too large a noise, you shall say, "'Hush to us,' and we go more softly.' I promised to do so, but left the door open and enjoyed the fun as much as they did, for a more glorious frolic I never witnessed. They played tag and soldiers, danced and sang, and when it began to grow dark, they all piled onto the sofa about the professor, while he told charming fairy stories of the storks on the chimney tops, and the little cobblods who ride the snowflakes as they fall. I wish Americans were as simple and natural as Germans, don't you? I'm so fond of writing, I should go spinning on forever if motives of economy didn't stop me, for though I've used thin paper and written fine, I tremble to think of the stamps this long letter will need. Pray forward Amy's as soon as you can spare them. My small news will sound very flat after her splendors, but you will like them, I know. Is Teddy studying so hard that he can't find the time to write to his friends? Take good care of him for me, Beth and tell me all about the babies, and give heaps of love to everyone. From your faithful, Joe. P.S. On reading my letter, it strikes me as rather berry, but I am always interested in odd people, and I really have nothing else to write about. Bless you. December. My precious Betsy. As this is to be a scribble-scrabble letter, I direct it to you, for it may amuse you, and give you some idea of my goings-on, for though quiet, they are rather amusing, for which, oh, be joyful, after what Amy would call Herculean efforts, in the way of mental and moral agriculture, my young ideas began to shoot, and my little twigs bend as I could wish. They are not so interesting to me as Tina and the boys, but I do my duty by them, and they are fond of me. Franz and Emile are jolly little lads, quite after my own heart, for the mixture of German and American spirit in them produces a constant state of effervescence. Saturday afternoons are riotous times, whether spent in the house or out, for on pleasant days they all go to walk, like a seminary, with the professor and myself to keep order, and then such fun. We are very good friends now, and I've begun to take lessons. I really couldn't help it, and all came about in such a droll way that I must tell you. 
To begin at the beginning, Mrs. Kirk called to me one day as I passed Mr. Bear's room, where she sat rummaging. Did you ever see such a den, my dear? Just come and help me put these books to rights, for I've turned everything upside down trying to discover what he has done with the six new handkerchiefs I gave him not long ago. I went in, and while we worked I looked about me, for it was a den, to be sure. Books and papers everywhere, a broken meerschaum, an old flute over the mantelpiece as if done with, a ragged bird without any tail chirped on one window seat, and a box of white mice adorned the other. Half-finished boats and bits of string lay among the manuscripts. Dirty little boots stood drying before the fire, and traces of the dearly beloved boys for whom he makes a slave of himself were to be seen all over the room. After a grand rummage, three of the missing articles were found, one over the birdcage, one covered with ink, and a third burned brown, having been used as a holder. "'Such a man!' laughed good-natured Mrs. Kay, as she put the relics in a rag-bay. "'I suppose the others are torn up to rig ships, bandage-cut fingers, or make kite-tails. It's dreadful, but I can't scold him.' He's so absent-minded and good-natured, he lets those boys ride over him roughshod. I agree to do his washing and mending, but he forgets to give out his things, and I forget to look them over, so he comes to a sad pass sometimes. Let me mend them, said I. I don't mind it, and he needn't know. I'd like to, he's so kind to me about bringing my letters and lending books. So I've got his things in order, and knit heels and two pairs of the socks, for they were boggled out of shape with his queer darns. Nothing was said, and I hope he wouldn't find out, but one day last week he caught me at it. Hearing the lessons he gives to others has interested and amused me so much that I took a fancy to learn, for Tina runs in and out, leaving the door open, and I can hear I'd been sitting near his door, finishing off the last sock, and trying to understand what he said to the new scholar, who is as stupid as I am. The girl had gone, and I thought he had also, it was so still, and I was busily gabbling over a verb, and rocking to and fro in a most absurd way, when a little crow made me look up, and there was Mr. Bear looking and laughing quietly, while he made signs to Tina not to betray him. So he said, as I stopped and stared like a goose. You peep at me, I peep at you, and this is not bad, but see, I am not pleasanting when I say, have you a wish for German? Yes, but you are too busy, and I am too stupid to learn, I blundered out, as red as a peony. Prut, we will make the dime, and we fail not to find the sense. As evening, I shall give a little lesson with much gladness, and look you, Miss March, I have this debt to pay. And he pointed to my work. Yes, they say to one another, these so kind ladies, he is a stupid old fellow, he will not see what we do, he will never observe that his sock heels go not in holes any more, he will think his buttons grow out anew when they fall, and believe that strings make themselves. Ah! but I have an eye, and I see much. I have a heart, and I feel. Thanks for this. Come, a little lesson now and then, or no more good fairy works for me and mine. Of course, I couldn't say anything after that, and as it really is a splendid opportunity, I made the bargain, and we began. I took four lessons, and then I stuck fast in a grammatical bog. 
The professor was very patient with me, but it must have been torment to him, and now and then he'd look at me with such an expression of mild despair that it was a toss-up with me whether to laugh or cry. I tried both ways, and when it came to a sniff or utter mortification and woe, he just threw the grammar onto the floor and marched out of the room. I felt myself disgraced and deserted forever, but didn't blame him a particle, and was scrambling with my papers together, meaning to rush upstairs and shake myself hard, when in he came as brisk and beaming as if I'd covered myself in glory. Now we shall try a new way. You and I will read these pleasant little Martin together and dig no more in that dry book that goes in the corner for making us trouble. He spoke so kindly and opened Hans Andersen's fairy tales so invitingly before me that I was more ashamed than ever and went at my lesson in a neck-or-nothing style that seemed to amuse him immensely. I forgot my bashfulness and pegged away, no other word will express it, with all my might, tumbling over long words, pronouncing according to inspiration of the minute, and doing my very best. When I finished reading my first page and stopped for breath, he clapped his hands and cried out in his hearty way, Das ist gut. Now we go well. My turn. I do him in German. Give me your ear. And away he went, rumbling out the words with his strong voice and a relish which was good to see as well as hear. Fortunately, the story was the constant tin soldier, which is droll, you know, so I could laugh, and I did, though I didn't understand half he read, for I couldn't help it. He was so earnest, I so excited, and the whole thing so comical. After that we got on better, and now I read my lessons pretty well, for this way of studying suits me, and I can see that the grammar gets tucked into the tales and poetry as one gives pills and jelly. I like it very much, and he doesn't seem tired of it yet, which is good of him, isn't it? Tell me something nice, Marmy. I'm glad Laurie seems so happy and busy that he has given up smoking and lets his hair grow. You see, Beth manages him better than I did. I'm not jealous, dear. Do your best. Only don't make a saint of him. I'm afraid I couldn't like him without a spice of human naughtiness. Read him bits of my letters. I haven't time to write much, and that will do just as well. Thank heaven, Beth continues. So comfortable. January. A happy new year to you all, my dearest family, which of course includes Mr. L. and a young man by the name of Teddy. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your Christmas bundle, for I didn't get it till night and had given up hoping. Your letter came in the morning, but you said nothing about a parcel, meaning it for a surprise, so I was disappointed, for I'd had a kind of feeling that you wouldn't forget me. I felt a little low in my mind as I sat up in my room after tea, and when the big, muddy, battered-looking bundle was brought up to me, I just hugged it and pranced. It was so homey and refreshing that I sat down on the floor and read and looked and ate and laughed and cried in my usual absurd way. The things were just what I wanted, and all the better for being made instead of bought. Beth's new ink bib was capital, and Hannah's box of hard gingerbread will be a treasure. I'll be sure and wear the nice flannels you sent, Marmy, and read carefully the books Father has marked. Thank you all, heaps and heaps. Speaking of books reminds me that I'm getting rich in that line 
for on New Year's Day Mr. Bear gave me a fine Shakespeare. It is one he values much, and I've often admired it, set it in the place of honor with his German Bible, Plato, Homer, and Milton, so you may imagine how I felt when he brought it down without its cover and showed me my own name in it, from my friend Friedrich Bear. You say often you wish a library. Here I give you one, for between these lids, he meant covers, is many books in one. Read him well, and he will help you much, for the study of character in this book will help you to read it in the world and paint it with your pen. I thanked him as well as I could, and talked now about my library as if I had a hundred books. I never knew how much there was in Shakespeare before, but then I never had a bear to explain it to me. Now don't laugh at this horrid name, it isn't pronounced either bear or beer, as people will say it, but something between the two, as only Germans can give it. I'm glad you both like what I tell you about him, and hope you will know him some day. Mother would admire his warm heart, father his wife's head. I admire both, and feel rich in my new friend, Friedrich Bear. Not having much money, or knowing what he'd like, I got several little things and put them about the room, where he would find them unexpectedly. They were useful, pretty, or funny, a new standish on his table, a little vase for his flower, he always has one, or a bit of green in a glass to keep him fresh, he says, and a holder for his blower, so that he needn't burn up what Amy calls mouchoirs. I made it like those Beth invented, a big butterfly with a fat body and black and yellow wings, worsted feelers, and bead eyes. It took his fancy immediately, and he put it on his mantelpiece as an article of virtue, so it was rather a failure after all. Poor as he is, he didn't forget a servant or a child in the house, and not a soul here, from the French laundry woman to Miss Norton, forgot him. I was so glad of that. They got up a masquerade, and had a gay time in New Year's Eve. I didn't mean to go down, having no dress, but at the last minute Mrs. Kirk remembered some old brocades, and Miss Norton lent me lace and feathers, so I dressed up as Mrs. Malaprop and sailed in with a mask on. No one knew me, for I disguised my voice, and no one dreamed of the silent, haughty Miss March, for they think I am very stiff and cool, most of them, and so I am to whippersnappers. Could dance and dress, and burst out into a nice derangement of epitaphs, like an allegory on the banks of the Nile. I enjoyed it very much, and when we unmasked it was fun to see them stare at me. I heard one of the young men tell another that he knew I'd been an actress, in fact, he thought he remembered seeing me at one of the minor theatres. Meg will relish that joke. Mr. Bear was Nick Bottom, and Tina was Tatiana, the perfect little fairy in his arms. To see them dance was quite a landscape, to use a teddyism. I had a very happy New Year after all, and when I thought it over in my room, I felt as if I was getting on a little in spite of my many failures, for I'm cheerful all the time now, work with a will, and take more interest in other people than I used to, which is satisfactory. Bless you all. Ever your loving, Joe. Thank you so much for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. This has been Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, chapters 32 and 33. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting to help me improve the quality and to help me keep up my three-episode-a-week schedule. You can find me at patreon.com forward slash relaxing literature. Please also find me on Instagram at relaxing literature and on Twitter at relaxing lit ASMR to leave your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Good night.